Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guests are Alison Bechtel, author of the graphic novel Fun Home, and Janine Tesori, composer of the musical adaptation of Fun Home. Fun Home is now at the Curran Theater in San Francisco, playing through February 17, 2017, as part of a national tour. Fun Home won the 2015 Tony Award for Best Musical, and Janine Tesori shared the award for Best Original Score with lyricist and librettist Lisa Crone. Alison Bechtel is also the author of the comic strip Dykes to Watch Out For and the graphic novel Are You My Mother?, Janine Tesori has written the music for four other musicals, Violet, Thoroughly Modern Millie, Shrek the Musical, and with Tony Kushner, Caroline or Change. She has also written scores for four animated films, including Shrek the Third, and is currently working on a new opera with Tony Kushner. Before we get into talking specifically about Fun Home, I want to ask a quick political question Fun Home started at the public theater, which means that the NEA was one of its supporters, and the NEA is disappearing. Janine Tesori, what can we do, if anything? First of all, the series of resistant measures, I think, is really imperative. And the NEA was, in a lot of ways, not as impactful as it had once been. So... I think we have to almost privatize the NEA and make sure that we privately create an income stream and redistribute the wealth, especially that on Broadway. There are a lot of people who are doing quite well for generations to come. And I think the responsibility from all of those people who are almost all of them goodwilled and their politics are for me in the right place, are they have the responsibility to take it in their own hands of how to redistribute so that in the place of the NEA that we fund those projects, the public theater, Playwrights Horizons, all of those those places and those artists who otherwise are not going to have any funding. Did you get any grant money to work on any of your graphic novels, Allison? I Got a Guggenheim at one point, yeah, uh, but nothing from the NEA. Let's get started on Fun Home, which is at the current theater in San Francisco. Alison Bechtel, you had already created a successful graphic novel, and this was your second one. Technically, Fun Home was my first graphic novel. I was a cartoonist for many years before that, but just publishing a comic strip. What started you on the graphic novel? I had wanted to tell this story about my family for a very long time, ever since it happened when I was young, when I was 19 or 20. Uh, and finally, by the time I was 40, I was able to start writing this weird, weirdly intimate personal story that revealed all the dirty laundry of my family, because I felt like somehow with that much distance, I could do it. And it felt like such a weird personal project, but then it seemed to strike a chord with people. Were you surprised when it suddenly hit the bestseller list? 
Oh, yeah, I was blown away. Yeah, it's just been a surreal roller coaster ride ever since. Well, first of all, it's the story of you coming out to your family and finding out at that point your father's gay, and then he kills himself. In a nutshell, yes. <laughs> Which, of course, doesn't necessarily translate into a musical, almost a musical comedy, because it's very funny. And that requires someone, I guess, Lisa Krohn, who saw it and thought, oh, there's something here. Uh, Janine, you worked with Lisa. What was her response? How did she find out about it? And when did she approach you? Well, she knew about Allison and, and her work in Dykes to Watch Out For. And someone said to Lisa, you know, this, this that book would make a great musical. And Lisa tells a story. She's very funny about it, how she immediately decided that that was true, which was interesting because she's never written one before, but she was very confident to forge ahead. And uh, she contacted me and we met. And I did not know the book. And I read it and I immediately knew. You know, it really hit me, as it does everyone. It's, it's a seminal piece of work. And I said, this is really going to sing. And it's really going to be hard to figure out. Musicals, they can go backwards really easily. And you don't really know. It's, it's a bit of a corn maze. You just can't find your way out. But you really went in with a lot of confidence. When you say it's a corn maze, you had actually worked with Tony Kushner at that point on Caroline of Change. So you had some idea that translating memoir into reality can be really tough. Yeah, and that was also an original, you know, based on a life. And I think when you do that, there is great, you know, we, we, we sometimes are a little bit cavalier about talking about these families. And for Tony, that, there was a lot of his life in that book. His mother was indeed a bassoon player and his father was a clarinetist and a conductor, and it was. And Caroline is based on a real woman who I met many times, and and Allison and her family. It's it's a narrative of people who lived, live, and are are you know have a big future ahead of them. So there is a real responsibility to those lives on stage. It's not just about doing meme or something that has some distance. There was no distance for us, and I think that's why I knew it would sing. And I knew that the bar was really high, not just for it to be exceptional, but for it to be exceptionally true. And yet we had to conflate certain things that didn't happen just for the rhythm and inevitability that comes from making a musical work. Alison Bechtel, Lisa approaches you. What is your thought at that point? My initial thought, honestly, was I cannot imagine how this is going to possibly be turned into a musical. <laughs> you know, the book was just that so... That is the correct response, <laughs> always. It just seemed like a crazy book. I couldn't imagine it. But of course, I'm not a playwright. I had no idea. And then when I saw what Lisa was doing, it was astonishing. She's the one who came up with the idea of the three different Allisons? I don't remember. Maybe I think there were two, there were three... I don't remember. I don't. I don't know at some a lot of points what happened. I'm sure that's true. I remember when I did. Um, I was the conductor for Tommy and the Who's Tommy, and there was one point where the narrator goes into the play at the end of the act, and somehow that that moment I've stored away. Um, and I brought Lisa to Lincoln Center to watch it, and I said we have to do that. There's a point where she has to go into her narrative. And I don't know. So we always knew that was going to happen. And I'm sure that there were 
two or three Allisons when Lisa brought it to me. I never heard that particular story. Oh, yeah. I keep learning little tidbits <laughs> like this as we do these interviews. Yeah, thank God for these interviews. The we yeah. find out all the things we're missing. <laughs> you know, you've had quite a, a bit of experience first doing arranging, starting up at the bottom level of the Broadway world and working your way up to eventually thoroughly modern Millie. So along the way, you're picking up little bits here and there. Mm -hmm. How much formal knowledge, formal training did you have of the musical when all this began? Way back when, none, none. I was classically trained and then I was in band. So I had a very eclectic background. I was supposed to be a doctor like my father. So I had a real scientific, the methodology of of um, diagnosing, you know, an organism like a musical is very, it's, it, they're very related. You have to find out what's wrong with it and make sure you don't remove the spleen when you really want <laughs> half of the lung. And uh, I wish it were so clear. So I didn't even know about musicals really until I was 18 or 19. And then I switched over to them. You did some adapting of How to Succeed in 97, I think it was, right? Yeah, that was way after, you know, I graduated. We were about the same age. So at 19, that was 1981. I didn't even know how you made a living. My grandfather was a musician and he died pumping gas in this country. So I didn't even realize there was no one in my family who knew anything about what I was doing. So I just thought, well, I'll be a pianist and I'll, and I didn't even know there were pits. But like, if you're a kid from Long Island, you know, there's no way you can know unless your family really takes you there. You you don't see musicians in a pit. You, I knew that there were orchestras, but I didn't know that world at all. And it turns out that that was a really great way to come into the, it's it's really a beginner's mind because you have, you're a beginner. And I was old enough that I had enough um, skill from piano and from studying, but not about narrative. So it all came later with all of, of that hunger to learn. I was on social media and a friend of a friend is a huge fan of yours. And Janine Tesori, and she said that, and this is a question for both of you, there were times in both of your careers when nothing was happening. At that like point, yesterday. <laughs> at that point, how do you keep going? And this is, I guess, from a woman who may be in a similar position right now. Well, I guess I've never seen it that way. I've never, I never ever felt, once I decided to go into music, and I think music went into me a long time ago when I was really young. I sought it out. I started playing at three. Right. And I've never felt that my whatever career, my love for music grows and the love for narrative and the curiosity and learning. I've never felt that way that I, there was always something. There's always something to do, especially if you're in New York. You seek out another artist and respond to them. You take a class. You read the next book. You you do the next right thing. You just get better. And when the world catches up or doesn't, there are things you cannot control about that. Alice? Well, I did reach a point in my career when it was getting harder and harder to make a living as a cartoonist in the early 2000s. I, I sent my comic strip to little gay and lesbian newspapers all around the country and those were starting to merge or fold. The internet was changing everything. Um, cartoonists in general were having a really hard time figuring out how to keep earning a living. But during that time, I was also working on, on Fun Home, writing this graphic novel, which was, you know, miraculously successful. And, like, I really feel like it saved me and enabled me to continue being a cartoonist. 
Well, in those days, for you, I know there were women cartoonists out there. A friend of mine, Trina Robbins. Oh, Trina. Yeah, you know Trina. Yeah. She was working very hard in the field and promoting. She's a great pioneer. So you actually had some kind of people out there to kind of look up to and emulate. But Janine, sure, there were a few Mary Rogers, a few women in the field. Very few composers. Lucy Simon, uh, Liz Suedos, Mickey Grant, but not a lot. Did the fact that you were surrounded by men in a field that was dominated by men, how did you feel and also how did you manage to prosper? You know, I was raised in a very, very tough way. I was one of four daughters, and my father was really, really, really strict. Very tough. And we were raised, he raised us like boys. So, you know, there were no boys, so we were boys. We played football and piano, and I break my everything playing sports, and he raised us to be very rough. And that helped in music. So... I didn't have a lot of problem in in this industry. I never have. I mean, there was a, the, what I, I, I missed when I had a, a child, I really missed that idea of community. But then there were directors, um, many of them, who invited my daughter in to rehearsal and made it. That was the dividing day for me. In your mind, at least, what was the big break? For me, it was definitely Violet. I made a living as a pianist and arranger and a conductor for a long time. It didn't occur to me that I would make a living as a writer ever. I took it into my own hands. I left the, I actually rented a lighthouse near where Allison lives, strangely enough that we didn't know each other. And I got the rights myself to a short story. And I thought, this is how you have to happen. You can't wait for the phone to ring. You have to find it yourself. And that kind of resilience and resourcefulness, you can't get anywhere, even if things are handed to you. Uh, you can't get anywhere. You have to have that endurance, that spirit. And when you use the word pioneer, I think you have to have that, especially when you're trying to learn the form. It's a really squiggly form. You know, right. it's a slippery fish kind of a form. It's always changing. And uh, so I think there's a lot of arrogance of, I'm going to do this. And then there's incredible humility that's needed to know that, you don't know what you're doing, even if you're very confident and skilled. Well, there's a point where you might think you know what you're doing, and then the first time it's performed, who knows? Oh, absolutely. You don't know. You don't know until you know. It's one of the reasons when I work with people, they're often producers who are really well-meaning, and they come whisper and say, this is going to be amazing. And I always say, do not tell me how it's going to be. You don't know, and I don't know, and I will begin to believe you. And that will be bad for both of us. And we'll find out when we find out. Well, one thing I've noticed is that on some level, when it hits, it's like with Allison, it's luck. It's like something just clicks. And it's not something you can necessarily duplicate. No, it, there's alchemy. There's prescience about, you know, Fun Home happened at a time where we were the right age at the right skill level, telling a story about a person who was at the right age and the right skill level to tell the story about her family, when the nation was at the right skill level to accept and, you know, really embrace this narrative. It was finally time for all those things to happen. Yeah, a few years earlier, and I don't know if it would have happened. No. And a few years, well, we won't yeah, talk about a few years. think about that. Yeah. So let's go back to the creation of Fun Home. Lisa begins to work on it 
she shows it to you, Janine. Now, you're already involved. At that point, what have you offered to her in the fact that you have done adaptations like Thoroughly Modern Millie? You already have some idea of how it works, and you've done the memoir thing working with Tony. Was there anything that suddenly said, well, okay, Lisa, if you do this, and she goes, wow, yeah, that'll click. The way that I work, I don't receive work from a librettist and then set it. I've never done that in my life. Maybe once I've set a lyric that's complete. It's not how I work. And so we're in it together. We traveled, we procrastinated all over the world together. We went to Ojai and to many Sundance festivals and she would come to, we worked in coffee shops and there's a lot of back and forth that we would come up with something and we made it absolutely together. And, and part of it is we studied musicals because she hadn't written them and you can always use the practice by studying certain musicals that you love to find out why they work. So uh, you can also reference them when you're doing the work itself. Uh, can you give it a couple of examples? Yeah, we looked at Sunday in the Park with George because that is you know, it's something I'm producing right now in New York and it's an absolute relative of this. It's about an artist right. creating work and, and trying to make order out of the chaos that is memory and life. So I really wanted to understand that. I knew I know that musical up and down, but we did it together and we read through the libretto together. We talked about what the difference was in between those two things and what the, the metaphor was, what's intact about it, what the central question is, why rhythm is so important in, you know, I knew that there had to be times where out of this, you know, joy, the capacity for joy in a musical is so important. So you just can't it otherwise it's too much you can't listen to it anymore it's sort of like having veal chicken with a pork dinner afterwards and it's just too much and so that idea of variety so you really take your ear and your heart through a, a journey in the evening it becomes very important uh in the so that a musical really has legs and it gets done over and over well that, that's kind of instinctive like um a film editor knowing when to cut or I edit my interviews the moment when I know I have to go from talking about, say, the book to talking about the writer. Right. That ear training, I would call it, yeah. is is sometimes it's, it, it's intuitive and sometimes it's really by design when you just know, oh, we're writing this thing and later on in the piece we're going to reprise it. So we write it in a circular way. You're not just going to write something and then sort of hope that it's going to work. You know, those those that's for a young artist and... And, and now just trying to write from the back, from seeing what it's going to be backwards and forwards. Allison, is that how you would be working, say, on a graphic novel now? That was really interesting what you just said, Janine. I envy your clarity about your methodology because I, I really don't have that. I feel like I'm always just writing in whatever way I can manage. But I do try to look for patterns. I do try to look for, you know, to think where it's ending and how to work backwards. So you're going from the blank page. We are going from, right, you're, you know, we have, a, we have a map always, yeah. unless yeah. you're writing something like, even with Caroline, I always have a map of, of something. So you're really doing that excavating. We don't do. There's a point, Allison, where you're also, when you no longer have a blank page, where you're looking at it and you're also saying to yourself, well, wait a second, what is the order of the panels what needs to come out now? So at that point, on some level, you're kind of 
instinctively at least going, hey, this panel is great, but it has to come out. Yeah, it's like what you were saying about ear training. There's some way that I just know what works or doesn't. Janine Tesori, she's brought the idea of the multiple Allisons. You're looking at this and you're thinking, okay, where are we putting the songs? I know that, for instance, Sondheim talked about Hammerstein would write a play and then know that, okay, this section of the scene is going to come out and that's where a song's going to replace it. Was that ever part of your process? Yeah, absolutely. My friend George Wilf always says about musicals, the greater the ambition, the simpler the spine. And that's absolutely how I feel. I share that. And so it's, it's a, there's a skeleton and it has to be super, super simple. And then within that, that sort of block, even if it changes a million times, you begin to feel, oh, well, that's the place where it rises into that. You know, Ring of Keys was a clear moment. I understood it immediately looking at that cell. And, you know, I, I took my copy of the book. I bought two. And one I ripped up and put all over to understand something after the fact, since I hadn't written it, where the patterns were that Allison was perhaps not conscious that she was doing, ending every chapter with a cell of her and her father in close proximity. And I thought, oh, that's what it is. It's reaching, it's not just the balance of it, but the, the, the movement through. And so there were other things that we would, you know, we, we just dissected it. And, you know, my, my copy is, it, it really looks like a, a, a truck ran over it. Did you go to Allison at any point and try to draw out from her exactly what unconscious material was going on? Yeah, we did. And and at the same time, you know, these are, Allison, you know, you gave us your journals from the time that you were working on it. Yeah. But these are painful memories. And I didn't really feel like, first of all, that was, I felt like it was our work. And I didn't really feel like calling a lot. Um, I think we checked in to make sure that we were on the right track. But I didn't want to call and sort of, you know, this 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 thing is, I think we discuss it sometimes as if it, it didn't really happen for real. And it and it did. You know, the cast went down to where Allison lived and spent a night there and they were very moved by it. And they went to where your father and mother are buried and they were very moved. Like, it, these, these are real lives. So I think that Lisa and I tried to keep enough distance so that we could figure it out on our own, just like Allison figured it out, and then check in to say, oh my God, are we on the right track? And, and then get the get notes from her. Well, Allison, when you were creating Fun Home, you know, I know a lot of memoirs hit a problem where sometimes making stuff up is easier to make transitions. Was there that in the original work? I tried really hard not to do that. I don't like those memoirs where you can tell people are writing it as if it were fiction, you know, making up conversations and stuff. I just, nobody remembers like that. So I tried very, very hard to only use what I knew. I mean, of course, I did have to make up conversations, but I tried to keep them quite minimal. And always, I was always looking at what I, at the accuracy of my own recollections and questioning all of that. Um, which I think is really important in a memoir. If you're not doing that, it's somehow not legitimate. Like, you you have to interrogate your own memory at every step. And translating that, how confident were you to stay to Allison's material, or were you more willing, because of a different environment, to create, to make the jumps? First of all, you're using music, 
and that's artifice. And right. so you're you're taking there's this this co- cognitive dissonance that you're taking something so true, and the search for truth, and you could tell because the conversations even you know there are snippets of it, and there was never one point where I thought reading that book that doesn't sound right. right. That doesn't it's just like it just all felt like you know there was a journey to the center of the earth of of truth. And musicals are artificial. So you have this incredible search for truth under this, this big varnish of artifice. And our job was to make it seem inevitable that this whole world sang. That all of the things that people wanted and the things that were keeping them from the things that they wanted most, that was the gap from which Melody came. The CD of Fun Home has a description of the first big song, the want song which normally comes from the protagonist, you made the decision to have it come from everybody about the father. Yes. Those things in musicals are very tricky for me because I really push against them. And of course, they're true. There's a reason why they're true. But I was really interested in trying to take the form itself and figure out a traditional I want song is very clear. When one of the protagonists, and it's shared in a way, is no one knows what they want. I I remember saying to Lisa, oh, that's what the I want song is, is that we have no idea what he wants, and that's going to have to do. So that it's really playing with even the form of how musicals are usually made that you hear from the very person. Well, that very person doesn't know what he wants. So we're all going to guess about the very thing that musicals are made of. How about the big 11 p.m. number that hits all of the musicals? It comes from a Greek, really from the the Greeks, which is there's a point where your lead, the person at the core who who has the most to lose, comes in from darkness to light. And it usually happens really late, and that's how that whole thing happened. It's true in any drama, but I I wasn't even aware that we were writing an 11 o'clock number at all until way after we opened and someone mentioned it. And I thought... (laughs) Oh, is that true? Because at a certain point, I was just going, I was trying to let it teach us what it needed, as opposed to impose what I knew that there were things. I knew it needed a group number, uh, like, uh, you know, to lighten the proceedings to create joy. And in talking to Allison, she would always say, we had a lot of fun in that house. Lives were led. We laughed a lot. And I thought, okay, well, how can we do that in a musical? We're going to have to have them do some things that the the audience can just take a breather. You've also got a, a show where, on the surface, when I say in two sentences what this is about, it sounds like a downer. And yet, it's not a downer. If it was a downer, it would never get made. You know, there are downers. Chekhov doesn't have a, you know, sometimes right. in the wrong hands, it doesn't have a Strindberg or, or Ibsen. But I think they have, they're compelling and there, as Brecht say, would say, that's entertainment. You know, it's what right. we, it's, it's the, to the consumer, we sell entertainment. But I think that that to be true and accurate to the time was that the line that was drawn for me was very, is very playful. The pen and ink at many points, is, it's got a playful tone. And I remember bringing some of the work to one of a, a mentor who I trusted. And he said, you know, Allison's work has a great joy in the stroke of it. And just make sure that you don't 
that that you pay attention to that. And it was really a great note. Who said that? Um, my, you know, I think that it was George also. Wow. Yeah. George. It's George Wolf. Yeah. The political element. I mean, there's a line again in in the CD. Someone says that this is a very political show, even though it's all personal. And of course, it is political. For you, putting together a musical, is that in the back of your mind? Like, how far can I go? I mean, for Allison, she's creating her memory, and she doesn't know if anybody's going to even look at it, but she's got to do it anyway, right? Right. But for you, you're in a collaborative effort, and you want to put this thing on. When you're putting this together, is that in the back of your mind? Are you saying, screw that, we're just going to go for it? I try to do that with everything. I learned a long time ago when I was writing Disney straight to DVDs. I wrote a lot of them, and it was brought me great joy and kept you know my daughter in school. It was just the most wonderful experience and working with all those animators. I just fell in love with all of them, and they were so good to us. And I was doing Ariel 3, The Little Mermaid 3. And I remember thinking, God, I wish you could find a barnacle on her breast or anything to just make this shit run. And um, someone said, you know, it's Little Mermaid 3. It's not what it's not. I was doing Carolina Change at the same time and digging really deep and being really brave. And I thought, a vessel has a silhouette that it can hold certain things. Fun home felt so vast that it could hold anything that we decided to put into it. And I really thought, fuck it, we're going for it on all ways. And everybody on the team felt that way. And I think often female hunger is not paid attention to dramatically. And that, especially for female composers, that there is a desire often not to write epic theater, but to write a domestic theater or, you know, fables of some kind or where they're on, they're contained. And I'm really trying to press against that and learn more of how to crack that open. And I thought that it's, it started a long time ago with Violet, but I didn't have enough skill. And then Caroline, I learned more, but I really felt like Fun Home was the thing that revealed itself to me as the place that I could be the bravest. And you also were working primarily with women, which means you're butting up against the establishment. Was there pushback or is Broadway pretty much open to that right now? Oh, there was tremendous pushback. Tremendous really? pushback because, you know, all of the Broadway theaters, and these are colleagues of mine and I love them, they're all white men. All of them, all of the theater owners that I understand on Broadway are all white men. And so the the programming and the bravery and the economics, it's, we don't have we don't have subsidized as you we started this the conversation. It's not subsidized. You have to be really you have to align yourself with people who are willing to lose, and you lose really big. The financial ramifications are so big because we don't have a national theater. You know, I look at what Nick Heitner did in the National, right. and it was just hit, just he just kept you know, filling every nook and cranny. And then the 10P program and all of the, the the way that he programmed that cracked open theater to so many people for so many people. And it's very hard to do that. We have that off-Broadway, but you can't make a living doing off-Broadway theater. You can only visit there. There is the public, and out here there's Berkeley Rep and ACT, and uh, certainly there's the Goodman and Steppenwolf. So there are some great theater companies 
you know, Roundabout, as you mentioned, in New York and Playwrights Horizon, but there's no centralized theater. No, and there's no Broadway theater, which has the national and global stage. I mean, all of those theaters are, I wouldn't be here if it weren't for those theaters, Sundance, The Public, Playwrights, Lincoln Center. There's no way. But, you know, the um, template is, is, is very, very tricky because it's so costly. For you, Allison, you start off going, well, I'm going to just be dealing with gay and lesbian papers because they're the only ones. But in a way, obviously, as you found out, that's limiting because you do appeal to a lot larger audience. Uh, does this change you at all? Well, I, I didn't appeal to a larger audience until that audience had been created. You know, when I was starting out in the early 80s, being an out lesbian was like being an out pornographer. I mean, it was just like not really? <laughs> something that you could sell. Uh, it didn't even occur to me to try to publish my stuff in a mainstream venue until many, many years into it when they're, you know, people were at a point where they were able to think about queer people's lives as human lives. But that, that took like a lot, that took like 20 years. By the time I quit doing my comic strip, I was just starting to have that crossover with it to a less queer specific audience. But it took a lot of doing. I mean, not just my doing, it was the whole culture. Curiously, of course, you've gone into our lexicon with the Bechtel test. What is the Bechtel test? <laughs> this is a very funny thing that I... It's from a very old comic strip that I did in the early 80s. It was just the, like this sort of lesbian feminist humor of the time. I, a friend of mine told me that she had this test that she would apply to decide whether she was going to see a movie or not. First of all, it had to have at least two women in it. Secondly, they had to speak to each other. Three, about something besides a man. And I just thought that was hilarious because, of course, there was like no movies you could go see that passed all of this. Alien. Alien at the time was the only right. thing because the two women in it talked to each other about the monster. Right. But, uh, you know. Probably a man. <laughs> um, but somehow, over the last 30 years, the mainstream culture has caught up with where lesbian feminists were then, and, and it's gotten this renewed attention, like, especially among young feminist filmmakers. That's what kind of brought it, dug it up out of the basement and made it into this real thing that people, there's a website you can go see if a movie passes it or not. And people have little debates about the finer points. It's kind of cool. Allison, what was your perception when you saw the final product and then when you saw it on stage? Did you offer any suggestions or were you just so overwhelmed? I had a very powerful reaction. I didn't see it. I, I heard the soundtrack and I saw Lisa's script from a, and the soundtrack was from a workshop you guys had done, but I didn't see it. And I was staggered. I didn't know what I had been expecting. You know, I knew there's, these people were making a musical, but when I finally heard it, it was just devastating and beautiful. And then Allison sent us both Long stem roses. Oh yeah, I'd never done that. I never sent anyone. Oh my god, like it was the most. Lisa and I, we, it was in my old studio, and we we got them, and we called each other immediately, and and you said you would send us your firstborn if you had one, but till now, till then, <laughs> roses. Please take these roses, and I I cried. I was so relieved. I was so relieved. I'm oh sure eventually god. I did give you some kind of notes or feedback, but my initial reaction yeah. was love, and also. 
at the current, it's proscenium and it was thrust before. Did that require a lot of work? Well, that's Sam Gold, the genius of Sam Gold, who I feel extremely loyal to. We wouldn't be here without him. That was the beauty of this, is that we needed Allison and Sam and me and Lisa, and then everyone surrounding us. We were, he's just a, he really is one of the greatest theater directors I have ever met. And he, we were in a thrust, then we were in proscenium, then we were in the round. We're back to the proscenium, but all along the way, he learned and we learned things from being in the different configurations because that the space affects how you see it. And finally, Alison Bechtel, what are you working on now? I'm just continuing to write cartoons about my life. I'm working on a graphic memoir about exercise and mortality and the aging body. You have a name for it yet? The Secret to Superhuman Strength. Which you say you, um, you believe that a person should be able to pull oneself out of a pit. <laughs> I've quoted that so many times. And a great metaphor, too. Janine Tesori, according to what I've seen, you're currently working on an opera with Tony Kushner, and you've recently written short musical songs for a Netflix Gilmore Girls show. Mm-hmm. Yes, I met Amy and Dan when we did the um, revival of Violet, Amy and Dan, Sherman Palandino. They were the producers, and uh, they called and said, we need four songs in a week. And I said, yeah, absolutely. So they shot it. They did it with Sutton Foster. And What's the difference between an opera with Tony Kushner and a musical with Tony Kushner? Not very much. It means that usually we both procrastinate just as much. Caroline was, I, I think, was a most really like a, a folk opera. It was through sung, most of it. I loved writing it. And it's, it's not always clear at the start of what um, what the form should take. I always feel like content dictates form. We just start writing, and then it begins to reveal itself of what it should be. And what is this latest opera? It's based on O'Neill um, uh, and uh, Carlotta, his wife, at the end of O'Neill's life. And the first act is on during the blizzard where he wandered out and on Marblehead Neck and uh, the officer who found him and pulled him out by his slippers. Eugene? Yeah. Eugene O'Neill. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Very same. And you had written an opera with Tony before. This is the same one. We did the first part okay. up at Glimmer Glass. And I'm actually writing... A couple of one about a um, an officer of the law, an African American officer, and I'm writing another one about a drone pilot. Musicals. I usually have seven or eight projects going because you just have to. And is there anything that's going to be coming to Broadway soon? I'm writing a new musical with David Lindsay Abair, and I have great hopes for it's based on one of his plays that I can't. We haven't announced it yet, but we're about halfway through. To listen to more of these interviews, go to my website, bookwaves.com or find the Bookwaves and Arts Waves podcasts at kpfa.org. Or you can subscribe to both podcasts via iTunes. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. <laughs>